I learn something every day. This company has shown me the world. And that is a very important part of my personal value equation. And the company demanded that I make a contribution. And I thrive personally in that. For 34 years, I've walked out of a door in a PNG office somewhere in the world, knowing that I've been paid that day to do what was right. So that's what as leaders we have to endeavor to deliver to each of our employees. And when we can bring that alive, people, they learn, they feel valued, they want to make a difference, and they want to help each other. And when that comes alive, amazing things happen. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the P&G Alumni Podcast. I'm Raman Segel, Recovering Marketer. And I'm Ida Abdelkani, a Chief Catalyzer. Raman and I both got our start at P&G, the Procter & Gamble company, where we had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at P&G. In this series, through conversations with fellow P&G alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know, but want to know more about. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee. On today's show, we're featuring a conversation our co-host Ida Abdelkani recently had with P&G Chairman and CEO John Moeller as part of the Enrichment Series webinars. It was a great chat about meeting the moment. John talks about the journey that P&G has been on in recent years and looks ahead to the future. You'll also get to hear John answer questions from the P&G alumni audience around the world. And as you know, each month, the P&G Alumni Network hosts their Enrichment Series webinars for some great live chats on some really engaging topics with room for Q&A. You can learn more at pgalums.com slash webinars. And also, if you haven't yet heard, the next PNG Alumni Global Conference is almost here, November 2nd through 5th in Washington, D.C. Not only will John Moeller be there, but four other PNG CEOs, numerous C-suite alumni leaders, and emerging trendsetters, and exclusive access to D.C. area events with your fellow alums at the PNG Alumni Global Conference, November 2nd through 5th, 2023 in Washington, D.C. We really hope to see you there. Lots more to come, so stay tuned by subscribing to the PNG Alumni Newsletter at pgalums.com. But let's jump right in. We hope you'll enjoy our conversation with PNG CEO John Moeller. So, welcome again for Enrichment Series with John Moeller for a look ahead. Many of you joining today already know John and know him quite well. He's been an integral part of PNG's leadership for well over two decades developing the strategies that P&G people are executing with excellence to drive the company's growth today. Since joining P&G in 1988 as a cost analyst, John has held various senior leadership roles, including most recently, chief operating officer, chief financial officer for more than 12 years and treasurer, as well as a host of roles in various categories, sectors, and regions, including assignments in China. So John, thank you again for being here with us to share your thoughts with P&G alums around the world. It's great to be here. Thank you, John. And as you know, we had David Taylor not too long ago, and he was talking about a look back, about the transformation that P&G had gone through during his tenure. But of course, you were also a pivotal part of that transformation. So why don't we start there? Can you please share your perspective of P&G's transformation and journey and where the company is at in the journey today. So I'll talk about a couple things that maybe haven't been talked about a lot, but that I think are very important and potential takeaways. There were two mindset changes that we needed to make 
in order to kind of set up the journey. And the first was simply one of balance. We had spent some time kind of careening between top line as a priority and then bottom line as a priority and back. And neither of those mindsets led to the kind of results on a sustainable basis that we thought we should hold ourselves accountable to deliver. And so we started talking about the need to deliver both the top line and the bottom line. And I started initially with a kind of trite saying, which is top line with no bottom line, a waste of time, bottom line with no top line, just a matter of time. And that resonated, but it didn't really change behavior. And I kept getting from people as to, okay, but really, really, which of these is more important? And we developed a chart a number of years ago, which we've used in every leadership team meeting since then. They get tired of it, I don't. Which shows what you'd have to believe to deliver top third total shareholder return, which is our objective, entirely through the top line or alternatively, entirely through the bottom line. And to do it entirely through the top line, you'd have to believe that we could grow organic sales 8% each year, each and every year. We've never done that as a company, ever. And so it was unlikely that we should expect that was going to happen in the future. So that, that brings in bottom line. If you try to do it entirely through the bottom line, you have to be confident that you can build 180 basis points of margin per year. So five years, 10 margin points. It's taken us 180 plus years to build 22 margin points. I don't think we're going to build 10 in the next five years. So that made it a little bit clearer that we really needed to deliver both. But there was still doubt, and people called it John's math. <laughs> like it was fake math. <laughs> so I said, all right, let's look at what the market is telling us about the, the relative importance of these two things. And if you look at the correlation between P&G's top line growth and our share price, it's actually very low. It's 11%. So you'd say, oh, well, what must matter is the bottom line. Well, no, if you look at the correlation between the bottom line and our share price, it's also low, it's 17%. But when you look at the correlation between operating total shareholder return, which combines top line and bottom line, requires you to deliver both, the correlation goes into the mid 60s. Okay. So I, that helped. And, and now it was time to get serious about delivering both. And there was one other mindset change that we needed to make, which was we were very market share focused and, and market share is a good thing and something that we want to hold and build. But the way that we were doing it wasn't necessarily sustainable or profitable. So we started talking about the importance of being a leader in market. That doesn't take business away from our competition and cause them to do some things that we might not want them to do. And it's also the only growth that's incremental to our retail partners. So, and if we lead market growth in our categories around the world, we will by definition build share and do it much more profitably. So those were two, in my mind, important mindsets that really mattered. And then we needed to get serious about what categories we wanted to participate in, what categories and brands. And it was a very difficult decision. As you can imagine, we went from, I mean, you could imagine the experience of standing up in front of a board of directors and saying, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go from, depending on the starting point, 22 or 17 categories down to 10. 
we are going to focus our portfolio from 225 brands down to 65. And we're going to, through that whole thing, accelerate growth on the top and bottom line and build market capitalization every step of the way. We wanted to focus our business in daily use categories or ideally multiple uses per day where performance drives brand choice or is a significant component of driving brand choice so that our strength and innovation could really come through and make a difference. And if you're going to be in categories where performance drives brand choice, you have to perform. And, and we weren't doing that. So we set ourselves to what people viewed as at the time as kind of a kind of obvious but crazy notion called irresistible superiority. And we needed to be irresistibly superior product, package, communication, go-to-market, value for consumers and customers in order to win in these categories. And then the last thing, I'll, two other things I'll mention. One is we needed to get much more cost-effective so that we had the financial means to invest in superiority and driving market growth and through that both the top and bottom line. And we went through a significant effort. I mean, we reduced the size of our organization on an apples to apples basis by mid 20% and uh, took out costs across the income statement, got more productive on the balance sheet, et cetera. And the last thing was our organization. I think David talked about this when he was last with you, but we were set up to run this company three different ways, through global categories, through regions and through functions. And we were staffed accordingly. And it created what I used to call the thicket, which was this, it was very difficult to understand really who was accountable for what. You know, one of the things about a real life thicket is that there's lots of hiding places and this was no different. And so when something went right, you didn't really know who to credit. And when something went wrong, you didn't really know who to work with to correct. Organization structure created incredible complexity throughout our operation, not just the structure itself, which was very hard, for example, for a new person of the company to really understand, but <laughs> because of the resources that were available to it, we created all this operational complexity. We had 25 million lines of custom code in our SAP implementation, which is more lines of code than exist in the off-the-shelf SAP application. Why? Well, of course, to sell soap. It was crazy, right? <laughs> and we produced more artwork per year than is housed permanently in the Louvre. Wow. We had 6,000 agencies supporting our business across the world. Um, and so, and that was an accountability nightmare as well. So those are some of the things that we fixed and, and this is not a, a series of actions or steps. This is a journey. And uh, we continue working on these same things in a more and more sophisticated way all the time. I know you'll ask me this, but I'll just get to it quickly and then turn it back to you. You know, kind of, so what? What's happened? <laughs> if you look at the last four fiscal years, which ended in June of 2022, this organization, this team created $13 billion in incremental sales. That's the, that ranks us at the 87th percentile of the S&P 500 over that same period of time. Back to balance, they also delivered $5 billion in incremental profit, ranking us 92nd percentile in the S&P 500. And as a result, 
things worked out well from a stock price standpoint, and we became the 12th most valuable publicly traded company in the United States, the 16th most valuable in the world. And if you look at more recent times, so the last six months, since the end of the last fiscal year, top line growth continues to be strong, 6% in the last quarter, or in the first, sorry, fiscal year to date. All categories, holding or growing, sales, holding or building, market share. The bottom line's been a little tougher. We had, uh, over the last two years, 50% of our profit eliminated as a result of increases in commodities, foreign exchange, and transportation costs. The team has done a marvelous job in offsetting that. So last year, we grew earnings per share at 3%. Despite that, this year, we're forecasting modest earnings per share growth while maintaining investment in that top line and superiority and market growth. So very long-winded, I apologize, but that's the story from my vantage point. So it's, it's helpful to have that context. And I'm wondering, you mentioned jokingly this idea of John's math, you know, as if it was fake math and having to get everyone on board for that type of outlook in terms of how you would get the company back on track. As you look back at it, why do you think it was so difficult for people to look at the company in that way, right? This idea of your math almost being like fake and it doesn't make sense when it, when it did make sense, right? And you've been able to prove that now through the journey. What do you think were some of those challenges? I think the biggest challenge is it's just easier as an employee in any part of our operation to say, look, I just want to do one thing and I want to do it really well. So mm -hmm. back to, you know, tell me again this equal thing can't be real. So <laughs> I want to know when I go back to my desk or my lab or my factory and, and I have a tough choice to face, which do you want me to prioritize? And it's just easier for all of us if we're given an or task as opposed to an and task. And that's gotten even a bit more complicated because, you know, we talked about balance initially as top and bottom line, but our world is very complicated and requires more from us now. So we're now talking about in an and context, the need to delight consumers, customers, employees, society, and share owners. And I truly believe that failure to do any one of those will lead to failure to do all of them. We just don't have a choice. There's no opt out. And that's exciting on one hand, but it's, it's hard. Yeah. So that's, I think, a really helpful perspective in terms of having to move from that or statement to an and statement. And you touched upon this a little bit about some of the difficulties that you encountered along the way as you went through the transformation. What do you think was the most difficult challenge you had in creating this transformation? Convincing and energizing and activating the leadership, the board, Wall Street, to believe that this massive reduction in our portfolio was actually a good thing, that less could actually be more. And then executing that once we announced it in a value, a creative way. And I won't explain all the difficulties associated with that, but it's not easy. And we had to keep the plane flying at the same time all this was happening. And as we were reducing significantly the size of the organization. So it's all of that together that presented the biggest challenge. And I just give tremendous credit to PNG people around the world who embraced that challenge and uh, didn't use it as an excuse, accelerated performance through all of that. It's a remarkable, remarkable organization. 
It, it truly is. And I'm sure we have a lot of alums from around the world on the line right now who were a part of that transformation. So thank you to all of you. Ileana, over to you. I know we've got some questions coming in. So let's take one or two from the audience, please. Of course. Some people are saying hi, John. Austin Alley from Austin Lally from the very sure Geneva and a couple of others, but someone's asking that they're grateful for the 23 years that they invested in, in PNG, especially in Latin America, and their stock actually paid for their college. So very grateful for that. Does PNG still continue to share ownership when possible with current employees? Absolutely. It's a key tenet of the employee value proposition and how we align the interests of employees, the company, our share owners. Absolutely. So John, I wanted to go back and talk about some of these key performance initiatives. You touched on it a little bit as you talked about the thicket, you know, the categories, the regions, the functions, and everything that you had to work through there, and how your combination of choices, you mentioned this idea of the and versus the or, and I think that context is really important because it was the combination of all of these choices to get to balance that led to these strong results. So when you look at the results and the performance of PNG today, where do you see the greatest impact of that transformation? The commitment to balance, the commitment to grow markets and the investment in product package communication, go to market and value superiority, that's critical to do that. You rightly mentioned and again, and that's relevant in the context of this question. You can't pick, if you're talking about superiority, and you're gonna grow markets in a very competitive world, in a very difficult world. You can't cherry pick. So you can't say, okay, it's all about the product. You can't say it's it's all about the communication or it's all about value. It, it, no, it's all of that. Right. And the best data I can give you, if we look at our category country combinations, take the top 40. In those where we assess ourselves to be superior on four out of five of those vectors, we grow household penetration, market, market share, and profit 80% of the time. And where we judge ourselves to be superior on only three of those factors, we grow household penetration, market share, sales profit, exactly 0% of the time. It, it couldn't be clearer. And so, so really focusing on, as an organization on how do we truly deliver a delightful experience a noticeably delightful experience, and that's across those vectors. We, If we stay focused and deliver on that, everything is going to be just fine. If we don't, uh, not so good. <laughs> well, you definitely have clarity, and I, I like how you're able to break things down into very clear components, but I'm sure there must have also been something that maybe caught you off guard as, as you went through this, maybe something that you thought you saw clearly that maybe didn't go as planned. And, you know, they always say hindsight's twenty twenty. So as you look back at this journey, was there something that you see now that you couldn't see then? Probably the need and the ability to do it all faster. We were somewhat tentative, self-included, and I understand why. But, but in that tentative approach to this, we were undervaluing the capability of the organization. And, and they, I mean, in an aggregate sense, not necessarily to a person, but they just wanted to get this back on track. And they were very anxious to embrace the changes that needed to be made, even when it came to themselves and their own roles. 
you know, we as human beings are all capable of tremendous things. And sometimes we don't fully appreciate, develop the capabilities of those around us. And when we do, the world changes. So <laughs> that's probably my biggest learning. So if I'm understanding correctly, it's the idea of leveraging our people more? Yeah, and having confidence in them and, mm -hmm. and trusting them to do what needs to be done once it's clearly described. Again, we were somewhat tentative. It took us four years to make the portfolio changes that we've talked about today. I don't think that could have been done in 30 days, but it, I'm not sure it needed to take four years. It, even the organization changes, took, the totality of the organization changes took 10 years. And again, it was a concern. It was a well-founded about the stability of the business, about the capability of our organization to deal with this, about the, the frustration associated with all the change that we were asking them to undertake. But we, we underestimated their capabilities, and I wouldn't do that next time. Yeah, that, that's interesting because David, when we talked in December, also said something similar when we were talking about leadership lessons. And he mentioned the idea of really needing to trust and give autonomy to the people that you entrust with certain initiatives, right? To really just let them go and trust their capabilities and have the confidence that they're going to make the right decisions based on the core values. So, yeah, um, I just one story there. I remember when I was working in China, you mentioned that earlier. I was in the finance organization at the time, and I had responsibility from a financial standpoint for about 12 different manufacturing facilities. And they were operating across three sets of legal entity accounting standards, Hong Kong, China, the U.S. And they were doing it all manually on an abacus, and they had no formal finance and accounting training. It didn't exist at the time. That group took all of those sets of books being done manually in an abacus to a mainframe SAP implementation in 18 months. And to your point, I'm convinced it's, it's because, you know, why were they able to do that? It's because nobody told them they couldn't. And they were determined, it, it took us 10 years to do that in the United States. Now, what a difference. But, but it just speaks to the power of people. Yeah. Oh, that's that's such a great story and example of that. I love that. Kate, you said 18 months? Yep. Versus 10 years. That's quite <laughs> that's quite the exponential difference. Ileana, I've seen a ton of questions coming in since our last Q&A. So back over to you. Yes, many questions. And I'm going to continue on with the conversation about people and I'm going to pull a couple of questions in there. And from your perspective, how has then P&G culture changed with this new approach, especially due to the emphasis of both the top and the bottom line? I don't think the culture has changed a whole lot, though there's much more confidence and belief in ourselves that we can not working at cross purposes, but working with each other, make tremendous difference in the lives of consumers and customers employees, shareholders, and do that in a responsible way from a societal standpoint. I think if you would ask people, say 10 years ago, do you think that's possible? I think the answer you would have gotten when you tallied it all up was maybe. It wasn't a, a certainty and a belief and a commitment to, to make it happen. So that's the biggest difference I see and feel. 
Thank you. And there's obviously a lot of ex-PNGers here because it's about the PNG alumni, but many of us are still deeply involved with the company. Do you see a way in which PNG alumni can continue to also support this transformation and journey? Well, there are many ways. You know, sharing your your own experience and learning, reflecting back on PNG, if you think there are things that would be helpful to the company, we're all ears. Making connections, which I think you've done a very good job with over time, helping your part of the equity building proposition of this company, what you represent in terms of your beliefs in this company, that matters. And uh, because you're actually viewed to have maybe a less biased voice than someone like myself, you know, I, <laughs> I tell people I'm one of the most boring people you'll ever meet. I've gone to one school, both undergraduate and graduate. I've worked for one company. And thankfully, I've been married to one person. So my perspective is fairly narrow to the cumulative perspective of people that are participating in this network. So I think there are, are many ways that you can help. Perfect. And I'll add one more question and then back to you, Ida, also in terms of people. How must companies' employee value proposition evolve to maintain PNG's competitive edge in attracting and keeping the strongest future leaders? That's one of the, the focus areas that we've embarked on to strengthen the execution of our strategy. And it's very simple in my mind, not simple to execute, but I think simple to understand. I don't know how we're going to sustainably deliver a superior proposition to consumers and customers without being able to attract, develop, and retain superior talent. And I don't know how we do that on a sustainable basis without a value proposition that's relevant and superior for each of them. And that has to, in my mind, include equality because there has to be something in it for everybody. And, uh, you know, making these kind of realities even more mainstream as opposed to something off to the side is absolutely critical. I think another big component of the value that employees find in their relationship with PNG is their ability to make a difference, to truly make a difference. That was always important for me. And if I felt that that was difficult to do or worse yet, wasn't welcome, that was a just a complete turn off. And maybe I'll just reflect quickly on one of the questions I get asked most frequently, which relates to this, is an, an individual employee value propositions. I get asked a lot, why did you go to PNG? And I get, get asked a lot, why have you stayed at PNG for 34 years? And the first of those questions is very easy to answer. I had met this wonderful woman who had received a job offer from PNG and decided to go work there. And I wanted to spend more time with her. She's We've now been married for 30 plus years. So I can't pretend there was anything sophisticated in my decision-making as to why I came to PNG. So the more important question becomes, why Why did you stay? She stayed. <laughs> I, can't, <laughs> I can't ignore that. But, you know, to me, it comes down to three things. I learned something every day. This company has shown me the world. And that is a very important part of my personal value equation. Back to contribution, the company demanded that I make a contribution. It was expected. And I thrive personally in that. And, but by far the most important, going back to values, was that for 34 years, I've walked out of a door in a PNG office somewhere in the world, knowing that I've been paid that day to do what was right. 
you put all that together, that's a hell of an employee value proposition, assuming we're paying competitively and benefits are great and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's what as leaders we have to endeavor to deliver in a personally customized way to each of our employees. John, thank you so much for sharing that perspective. I did not know that you initially joined because of who you ended up marrying. So that, that's that's a, a great reason, I think, to join and to stay at the company, along with the others that you mentioned in terms of the contributions and being paid to do what's right. You know, related to that, one of the things that you've added additional focus on is the employee value equation, which you touched on a little bit right now. But some other areas of focus that you've added after this transformation, you know, where we went and looked at balance and really bringing together top line and bottom line as a focus, you also brought in a focus on supply, sustainability, digital acumen, and the employee value equation, as we already mentioned. You know, why did you feel the need to add these four areas? You've talked about the, the need to simplify, and then at the same time, right, you are adding in some new areas of focus. and. You know, I think as PNGers, we're always digging deeper, right? We're asking why. So I'm, I'm interested in, in your why here. Well, it's interesting. When the board and David asked me to assume this responsibility, there was a lot of pressure from all different sides, from employees, from Wall Street, from the board. You know, how are you going to change the strategy of this company? And it drove me crazy. Because I thought, we, what, what do you mean? We've just spent all this time. <laughs> Created it, and there was an inherent misunderstanding too that the strategy was static and left to itself, it wasn't going to renew itself to reflect what was happening in the world around us. And I viewed it very differently. And I, I had many conversations with the board and others on the inherently dynamic nature of the strategy. And and so yes, things needed to change, but not the underlying fundamentals. The execution of those fundamentals needed to be sharpened and strengthened. And that's what these four focus areas are all about. So they're not new strategies. They're deliberate areas of focus that help us strengthen the execution of the underlying uh, strategy. So you mentioned supply. During the pandemic, we were, just take North America as an example, we had 24% of our SKUs on allocation. Meaning across 24% of our business, we were not fully satisfying either consumer or customer demand. Now, having said that, we have probably one of the best supply organizations in the world across industries. We're in the Kantar survey, which is a survey of our retail partners. They rank P&G supply number one, six out of the last six years. And they rank P&G supply number one in each of the seven metrics that they measure. But that's not the measure of success or failure. The measure of success or failures is consumer and customer delight which we weren't delivering on. And we also learned a lot during COVID about both the need and the ability to flexibly formulate. You know, we had major supply chains that were gone. Either suppliers went out of business or we couldn't cross a certain geographic country lines as an example. So supply chains were broken. And we had to learn to wake up every morning, find out what was available to us at what cost and and literally get that formula executed from a purchasing standpoint and down to the factory floor in a matter of hours something that would have taken us a couple months previously and so there's just a ton of opportunity to improve our effectiveness in delivering delight by further strengthening our already strong supply chain 
sustainability is increasingly an inherent part of the consumer value proposition is they evaluate whether something's worth buying and it's increasingly part of the performance they're looking for in a product. They're not willing to compromise typically between task performance and environmental responsibility. They want both and we need to deliver that both for them and for society. Our employees increasingly demand that we're ever more sustainable every day we operate. And that's, that's our intention. So it's just calling out a couple things that if we make progress on, will make a real difference. They're not separate from though. I mean, again, I've linked, for example, sustainability and superiority and think about supply and superiority. If you can't supply it, does it matter that it's superior? <laughs> I don't, I don't think so. So these are fairly fundamental reminders of things we need to focus on. Absolutely. And what about, you've also had a focus on digital. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's a somewhat tricky one. We have many opportunities across the value to improve the quality and speed of decision-making, to reduce costs, to improve quality on a real-time basis. And all of those are enabled by bringing together the various digital tools that exist. The risk, and I see this frequently, both here and other places, is that digital becomes an objective in itself. I don't, I don't care about that. Don't talk to me about AI, blockchain, blah, blah, blah. I don't care. You're not, you're not using chat GPT? <laughs> I'm not. But what I care about deeply is consumer delight, customer delight, employee delight. And if those tools can deliver against those endpoints, bring it on. If it's just, you know, a checkbox somewhere that says that, you know, our category is using this technology, again, I don't care. And you probably spent a lot of money in doing that. And why? To what end? So, so that one's a little bit of a tricky one as well. Sustainability can be a little bit tricky. I'm not interested in reducing the performance profile of our products, nor are our consumers. So we're back to and, just like at the beginning of the discussion. I love how you brought it back around. <laughs> Thank you. Well, also bringing it back around to something that we talked about earlier, the idea of balance being a priority. And when you were entering this transformation, the idea of balance was really about that top line and bottom line, right? Now, as you look at the company, how do you think about balance? What's the well, goal about balance now? Well, as I, I mentioned earlier, we in the ever more complex world we live in, it's not just top and bottom line that must be balanced. We must endeavor to balance the needs of an increasing number of constituents. And there's a lot of debate about this in the corporate community. I don't think it's a debatable proposition at all, but, but how you do it can be. It needs to be approached in a way that all constituents' needs are met, which is, again, challenging, but it's the price of entry in today's global world. And it's going to be increasingly important that we're able to deliver against all of that. But you can't get unbalanced in that in that approach. So we've talked just a minute ago about, you know, sustainability benefits without performance benefits. That's a losing proposition. And by the way, isn't going to do anything for a more sustainable world because those products aren't going to be purchased. You know, satisfying consumers but not customers. How do you get product from here to them without a satisfied customer, particularly in the middle, not always, but, but, but usually. And I think, you know, this is all, it can be very, it can be very daunting and challenging, or it can be tremendously exciting. And I see it as a little bit of both. Absolutely. And 
I like something that you just said. It, it's subtle, but critically important. You said from here to them, instead of here to there, right? From, right. from here to them. Is that a, a Johnism or, or is that a mantra at the company? <laughs> no, I think that's a company. I mean, consumers at the center, first, second, and third. And we are serving, we need to serve them as individuals meet their needs. And that's not a Johnism. That's, that's a Mr. Proctor and Mr. Gambleism. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. I have not heard that yet. Of course, always customer was, was at the center. And as you said, first, second, and third uh, during my time at the company, but I think here to them is a great mantra for us to remember. Ileana, let's go over to some questions from the audience, please. Absolutely. And there are, I think, many questions around the ability to continue to deliver that high value proposition, considering, you know, geopolitical pressures, compression of middle class and, and pressure on prices, increased healthcare needs. Like there's all these things mm -hmm. that are happening that in a way will challenge that ability to deliver the high value proposition that you're talking about. Any thoughts around that? You know, implicit in that question is a question about the future and, you know, whether we can continue to deliver the results that we have for all the constituents that we serve. When I look back at what this team has accomplished in the last two to three years, it is incredible. And it gives me tremendous confidence in both the, the rightness of the strategy and the sustainability of it going forward and the ability of the organization to execute. So what am I talking about? If we would have talked to each other three years ago and said, uh, look, there's a bunch of challenges that are going to be presented to the world. There's going to be a global pandemic. It's going to kill a whole bunch of people. It's going to close down borders. Your employees aren't going to be able to get to their jobs. And oh, by the way, there'll be the largest land war in Europe since World War II. And China, which has been the growth engine for the world, will go into deep recession. And the geopolitical dynamics, as well as the political dynamics within your own country, are going to splinter and fracture. How do you think your company performs? Oh, and by the way, we're going to have the highest consumer inflation in 40 years, and 50% of your profits are going to be eliminated as a result of commodity cost, FX, and, and transportation cost increases. Do you think that you're going to grow sales and profit through that? And I think very few of us would have thought that that was possible. Well, that's exactly what's happened. And, and that gives me tremendous confidence in the sustainability of the approach. If you look at the top line, for example, we grew 6% organically in the period pre-COVID. We grew 6% during COVID. We've gone, grown 6% knock on wood post-COVID. And, uh, you know, it, it's all attributable to the team. Thank you, John. What do you see as your legacy to be once you continue your journey? I think anybody's legacy is what they leave behind. So the health of the organization, the strength of the business, our ability to meet, have made progress in meeting each of those constituents' needs. But I don't think ever about personal legacy because I know I'm in, incapable of accomplishing any of it without the team. And we talk about that frequently. What's the kind of company, what's the kind of organization that we want to leave behind? And I think that's much more important than I. John, related to that, I actually want to dig in a little bit more about the idea of the P&G family. 
you know, we've already talked about this idea of one of the greatest assets of P&G is indeed its people. And we've talked about the employee value equation and how P&G pays you to do the right thing. So certainly there's some key components, I think, across all companies in terms of universal values. And I know we're biased, but I think that there's something special about P&G's values. There's something special about the P&G family, right? Just by virtue of us even having a network, and we believe we're the largest corporate alumni network in the world. What do you think really sets apart P&G's values and camaraderie that makes us such a tight-knit family? I think it's, again, I, this is the only place I've ever worked, so it's hard for me to compare and contrast but it's our belief in each other, our understanding that success requires the success of each person. It's truly looking on a good day, at least beneath the surface at, at what a person has to bring to the table in terms of their skills and experience and, and life. And when that comes alive within a PNG group, again, amazing things happen. Sometimes the stress and the activity and the things that we have going on in our own personal lives, which are equally important, prevent us from taking the time to see. So I talk to people all the time about meeting culture. Many people go into a meeting either trying to prove a point or trying to look smart or at minimum trying not to look dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and instead, it, the mindset was, I'm, I'm going into a room with an incredible group of people who have a different life experience than I do, have very rich business experience, and my objective is going to be to learn something from each of them. That's a very different world. And when we can bring that alive at PNG, both inside the company and through networks like this, again, people, they learn, they feel valued, they, they want to make a difference, and they want to help each other. I couldn't agree more. You know, John, we are getting near to our time here. So I would love to chat a little bit about the future. What makes you excited as you think about the future and as you look ahead? Well, again, just imagine our results without the challenges that I mentioned just a little bit ago. And imagine if we've been able to fully supply demand. That's a pretty incredible I mean, it, it's been an incredible outcome with those challenges. Without those challenges, I can't wait. I also have a lot of insight into and confidence in our innovation pipeline, which is critically important. We're building skills and capabilities. We talked across the supply chain, across our office environment. And I just see so many possibilities that, you know, it, it is truly exciting to get up and come into work every day and move us closer and closer to actualization and realization of those possibilities. And fundamentally, as we've touched on many times this morning, it's my confidence in our future is based on my faith and confidence in PNG people. Absolutely. And I'd like to also just ask you a few personal questions here, because we've had some coming in about your journey. People are interested in, in your leadership experience. What do you think really prepared you the most to become CEO? <laughs> I had no idea. I, <laughs> I mean, I was a biology major as an undergrad. I was a, in the finance function for years. But I think, and this is, again, one of the reasons that I love P&G is I would, every Sunday, 
I would write out a list and I would ask myself two questions. One is how is the business going to be stronger as a result of what I do this week? And the second question was how is the organization going to be healthier and stronger as a result of what I do this week? And the company was, you know, looking for both of those outcomes. And as long as I stayed focused on those things and didn't get distracted by a whole bunch of other things, the teams that I worked with were able to make large differences. And I think that's fundamentally at the end of the day, what makes the difference. But, but I don't pretend for a nanosecond that there aren't a ton of very talented PNG people who could do this job. I'm just delighted to be able to serve. And that's you know, one of the other great things about PNG is we do have an incredibly strong and deep bench, which I have high confidence in. Fantastic. And if you are going to take a look ahead for yourself, let's say, so this is a bit of a, I will say, a question that takes a look back and a look ahead, because you mentioned that you started at PNG. It's the only company you've ever been at. So if you were starting your career today, where would you start? Knowing what I know now and not pretending that there's only one great place to work in the world, because I don't believe that, I would ask myself those three questions that were the basis for my decision each and every day to get up and go to work at PNG, which is, is this an environment in which I can learn in, in kind of mind-blowing, not incremental ways? Is this a company that truly wants me to make a difference? And am I set up in the, in the context of the situation to truly make a difference? And what are the values of the organization? And do those allow me to be me? And do they allow me to make the fullest contribution I can? And again, I don't pretend there's only one company as an answer to all of that, but that's how I would approach it. I think that's very helpful advice for any of us looking at making any career changes or thinking about what our next phase may be. So John, thank you again for being with us today. So special thanks to you for taking the time out of your schedule to share insights with us and our alums around the world. We're looking forward to having you live at our conference in DC as well. And then we'll get to have lots of these questions in person. Can't wait. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast or email pgalumpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. That's it for this week. I've been Ida Abdelkani. And I'm still Raman Segel. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.